Hello, I'm Andrew from Ara Video in Wellington, New Zealand, and welcome to episode 7 of Back to the Disc Player, the Ara Video podcast. It's inspired by our Adopter Movie Scheme, which enables film lovers to purchase an exclusive, lifelong affiliation with a title in our library, or an acquisition that we may not have. It's where I get to talk to customers about their personal connection to film, or films they've chosen to adopt, and for us to find out a little bit about them. For episode 7, my special guest is film podcaster and film fanatic, Elric Kane. And this one's distinctive for being my first non-face-to-face interview because he lives in Los Angeles, California. And uh, ironically, we were not actually able to talk face-to-face at all because of technical complications with Skype. Um, These were at my end and not his. So it almost didn't happen, certainly not on the day it was supposed to. But in the end, we persevered and settled on doing the interview like an old-fashioned phone call. Uh, The interview came about through a mutual contact, so thanks to our member Rowan Sharp for reaching out to me and reconnecting me with Elric, who I knew was doing lots of filmy stuff in the States, but never quite sure what. Rowan is an old school friend of Elric's when he lived in Wellington, and Rowan himself has adopted a couple of movies uh, at our video based on recommendations from Elric's podcast. Those titles are uh, Albert Brooks' Modern Romance and the spooky French meta-mystery A Pure Formality. Anyway, Elric himself dives deep into film, lives and breathes it, and can talk anybody under the table about the subject. He's always thoroughly engaging and on point, and he nails the definition of why someone can appreciate both high and low cinema culture, and also the intellectual appeal of the horror film. He also has some really nice things to say about Ara Video and the influence that it had on him through his formative years as a film student in Wellington. And in that very generous spirit, He has adopted five films in our library and gives very considered reasons for doing so. Also stick around for my afterword in this episode where I'll debrief you about my recent uh, meeting with the chief film censor and let you know what progress is being made in my crusade to amend our classification laws as I laid them out in episode six of this podcast. But before that, I hope you enjoy my very interesting chat with my overseas guest, Elric Kane. Hi, Elric, and welcome to the Ara Video podcast. Uh, finally got you on here after some technical hitches, because after all, you are in LA and uh, I'm here in Wellington. Uh, so I hope this works. Um, but I'm calling you from your hometown, I do believe. It is. It is. It's it, I, <laughs> Which I haven't been back in a couple of years. So it's very nice to be welcomed back uh, in this way. Excellent. Yeah, great. Uh, so you are, as I say, in LA, and um, you're very much at the epicenter of the of the film world, or the, or the death, and, of, death um, of film culture, as I like to think. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. You're, you're you're right there where it's all happening. Um, I can only imagine. Um, but uh, you're a fellow podcaster, uh, for people that don't know uh, who you are, and you run um, not one but two podcasts which I've uh, only been introduced to uh, fairly recently, in fact, by a, a mutual friend of yours and a customer of ours. And um, I've been really enjoying what I've, what I've heard. I've listened to about five or six episodes, and the amount of information that I've gleaned in just those episodes is um, quite overwhelming. So um, I like to think of myself as overwhelming. <laughs> That's how I define myself. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's almost encyclopedic what's going on there at your um, 
Pure Cinema podcast and also Shockwaves. So I wanted, uh, if you could tell listeners, um, tell us a bit about uh, how you came to do two podcasts and, and where they both originated. Well, uh, Shockwaves uh, came out of a previous show called Killer POV that um, me and Rebecca and Rob, the other uh, two of the other hosts, were doing for a good three years. Uh, we were randomly assembled, believe it or not. We didn't know each other that well. Uh, somebody in L.A. who was running a studio asked somebody if you were going to get three horror minds together to create a podcast who would you pick and this was a friend of ours who was editing there and he threw out these three names and we all came in and did a quick test and got along and started recording shows and that went for about three years and when we got the feeling that place was wrapping up we just we had another friend who is the head of um Oh, well, now he's the one of the head creative development at Blumhouse, uh, and he just produced that new uh, Halloween. But Ryan, he mm-hmm. he was at Blumhouse and said, "Why don't you guys jump ship and we'll do the show over here, and I'll join the show, and it'll be the four of us." Yeah. And so we did because you know, obviously, getting Blumhouse behind you is a nice, nice name to get the uh, horror show. Absolutely. Out there. Yeah. So hmm. you know, but it it always came from a, you know a passion for horror, especially when I was younger. Um, yeah. Sure. So that. So how does the, the Pure Cinema podcast work into that uh, that scheme? Pure, Pure Cinema uh, comes out of me being a uh, a very broad cinephile who suddenly felt almost physically ill that all he got to talk about was horror. <laughs> so I right. I had a very strong urge after a few years of that to do a show where I could talk about other movies and things that I. You know things I love, especially you know, especially in my adulthood, uh, post twenty, and discovering our video and uh, being a film student at Vic. You know, my my film yeah. taste went much more towards the art house during that period. Sure. And uh, yeah, Brian, who I do the pure cinema with, he um he had actually come to my house to interview me for a documentary about Danny Perry's cult movies, and when it ended, mm-hmm. I just looked at him and said, you know what, I think you'd be good to do the show with because we don't know each other that well. And we'll get to know each other by doing a show each week. And I know he, I know he has mm. similar film tastes, but not the same. And he's, you know, got a very broad film knowledge and is a great guy. So I, I was like, let's see what that would be. It's it was a unique way to get to know someone through films, which I, I rather liked. Sure. So I, I understood that Shockwaves was was um, that's only been running a couple of years, but Pure Cinema has been running longer than that. But you're saying that you've you've had a lot. Uh, further history with the horror podcasting yeah i mean so is that, a- actually is that the way it yeah sorry yeah uh, yeah we we don't see each other just for those listening at home we we aren't on face skype <laughs> we're just on uh, mm. uh yeah so i actually did um so killer pov yeah no it's much longer in the horror horror is what started all here um it's like an extra three years on before pure cinema yeah. and then on top of that i actually had a live um video show when i first got out to la I uh, had an opportunity to create a show for live streaming, which was something kind of new, kind of just like a TV studio show that happened to be directly for the web. And it was an hour long, and uh, I ended up hosting mm. it called Inside Horror. And there's about 20-something episodes of that. So that went for almost two years. And there's me on there trying yeah. to... I gave Elijah Wood uh, New Zealand film Death Warmed Up live on air. I was very proud of that moment. Um, All right. <laughs> trying to spread the good word. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So um, you, 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 a Wellington lad, although you were, I see on your IMDb page, you're actually born in Brooklyn, New York. So is that uh, you've, you've kind of come back to, uh, to the US. So was that coincidental or how did that come about? I feel, uh, I mean, I think with parents, if one parent isn't in your life, 
or one there's more of a shadow part of your life you tend to end up going towards that so i had a my mother was a kiwi uh you know from reparoa rotorua uh and mm. she ended up you know kind of going overseas for a couple of years when she was 20 and met my dad who was a new yorker and so they mm-hmm. had me there but he passed away when i was very young when i was about three okay. and so they moved she decided to take me and my sister to new zealand so i, I was a new zealander from five and yeah. had both passports and never thought of myself as an American. I vote here, but it's hmm. it's hard to identify, especially right now. It's very handy to be a New Zealander uh, under the tyranny yeah. of uh, Trump. But um, yeah, no, hmm. so it's it was kind of, you know. It's, well, you, it's say, you, you sound more like an American these days, Elric, than a Kiwi. I think I sound like a Canadian now. <laughs> you're, you're 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 more into podcasting than podcasting i know that could be that, I, I must say that I've, I've heard every episode of this show now once i became aware of it and i've yeah. got to say it was almost a little shocking having been gone for a while when you start hearing the accents on full force on a yeah. show it was it was just momentarily <laughs> dislocating and then it became very nice and nostalgic uh, warm blanket for me to return to so yeah i appreciate that yeah 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 <laughs> oh well you're sounding very good <laughs> So when was it that you decided to to um, to live in LA and, and and to and to move from Wellington? What was the the reason behind that, or what was your first experience of uh, going back to LA and saying this is for me? I still don't think I'm there. Um, <laughs> I don't know if LA's for anyone. I think it's meant to be an inhuman city. But no, it's it's uh, it's fun. You get used to it once once I realized the people of LA are kind of great. The people in the kind of circles that I've gotten to know, it it definitely yeah. I warmed up to it. But um you know it, it's a little complicated i mean uh i went to film school in uh savannah down in georgia uh from after i finished at vic so that kind of started okay. connecting to a lot of other people here and had friends here and then when i then i went back to new zealand made a couple things including uh, one film that has a specific scene at a certain hour video uh upstairs right <laughs> um <laughs> and you know the kind of stuff we were into is very you know very uh kind of um self-referential you know minimalist art cinema kind of thing that we were all exploring at that point but definitely didn't mm-hmm. seem like i had much of a future in new zealand anyway and yeah. decided to um you know that i was still interested in making films and came actually moved to chicago for a little while taught taught cinema there worked in a kind of our video equivalent video store in um called facets in chicago and then one day looked wow. around and just thought i might as well give la so i didn't go straight to la la seems like a place that i don't think i ever would have had the gumption just to go direct but once i started looking around and realizing look if you want to do this you might as well see yeah. what it would be like um yeah and even all these years in it's not it's never an easy town it's a tough town sure you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned uh, facets in Chicago, mm. so so that's that's rather legendary as far as video stores are concerned. Is is that still going? Do you know? Yeah, facets still going strong. I mean, it's you know it's a nonprofit, and they they have an incredible selection. I mean, they have almost mm. everything. It, unfortunately, we're on the ground floor. You know, just in the video store part of it. And it's mm. not a very interesting layout. Like, I think there's other video stores that are a lot more fun to be in. It, it's a mm-hmm. good place to go and pick up that title you want, but it doesn't, it just does it lacks character, which I think is something you right. need now. I think to survive in times like this, in, you have to be curated. Mm. You have to have character. You have to have personality, mm-hmm. you know. And So they're more, more like a, um, a video repository. I, I think a little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, you mentioned uh, yeah, our video featuring in, in one of the um, feature films that you made or co-directed, and and uh, I was just going to mention that that you're part of the Arrow Video digital film movement, so called. 
Did yeah. you actually ever live in Aro Valley, Elric? I, I never did. I slept in Richard White's bed once and it was very sticky and unpleasant. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I've got to get out of here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, but I did visit and I spent many, many hours in that valley. Yeah. So, so I do. Uh, yeah. But I will say, and this is something I don't think you know about me, but I was. Mm. it might even be the main reason I, I wanted to do this uh, was to tell you something that I actually, my key life-changing moment is related to your store. Uh, mm-hmm. And you might you might have heard of this back in the day or not. I'm not sure, but uh, me and Alex, who I made that film with, we were in our first year at uni, and I was studying law, and but always yeah. wanted to be a filmmaker. And it was very late at night, and we had never seen Blue Velvet. We had never seen mm-hmm. uh, Lynch's Blue Velvet, and we decided to uh, quickly get down to our before it closed. And it was pouring with rain, and we ran across. We were going across the crossing outside our video, and it was about five minutes before you closed. And mm. I got hit by a car at about 80 miles an hour who did not stop. Oh, my God. And I flew, yeah. I flew about uh, 50 yards in the air. Uh, Alex missed I did not hear about this at all. No, Alex missed it by about an inch. I, threw, I flew through the air, and I somehow, I'm not even kidding, my, I had huge hair at the time, just giant, big, big curly hair. My head shattered the windscreen of this car. He, kept, he stopped yeah. for a second, then kept going. And I somehow yeah. landed more or less on my feet um, with my foot kind of twisted right around. But I was yeah. like on my feet. It was. It was. I mean, I, I'm not a religious person, but it felt like act of God type stuff. And sure. and I um and I looked over at Alex, thinking, "Oh my God, if that had been you, you'd have been dead," because you know, because <laughs> it's him. Yeah. You know. Uh, and we and it was just one of those just utterly unbelievable moments. We um, and and you know, then I had to you know go to the hospital and everything to get checked out. And uh, but I we then we couldn't obviously we you were closed before you know obviously we didn't rent <laughs> rent blue velvet that yeah. night i was underwhelmed mm. when we finally rented blue velvet but then it went on to become one of my favorite movies and would have been my main adoption for this very story but it was already adopted um oh. but it did, but, <laughs> but it did it made me go like the next day i uh yeah. ch- changed my major i dropped out of law went into film and never looked back because i said you know, yeah. that, that could have been it that so- moment for me you came away from that accident unscathed. Is that what you're saying? More or less, yeah. I was on crutches for, for a leg thing, but it should have been. I mean, it was going so fast, and I hit it with such force. Right. It, it, it kind of scooped me up. I think I got lucky. I got a bit... But it's one of those things you can't... I've always been pretty good at uh, following signs as much as I can, or, or when somebody gives you an opportunity, I try to take it because I do think the world isn't full of them. And yeah. and so that was one I remember just clear as day, you know, where it really affected the rest of my life. And that was right, like steps, you know, feet away from our video. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, yeah, it's relevant, yeah. relevant. <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it reminds me of the Jeff Bridges movie or um, Peter Weir's Fearless. It, it does, and I love that He survives that, film, that yeah. plane crash and, uh, and, and becomes uh, addicted to the taste of strawberries, if I remember <laughs> rightly. And uh, Rosie Perez, the taste of Rosie Perez. So, you know. Oh, that's right. right yeah, <laughs> a little indeed. Book. <laughs> hey, look, since you mentioned uh, Blue Velvet being uh, a, a close, uh, well, one that you considered for Adopt a Movie, um, you have indeed generously adopted five movies in the Arrow Video Library. So thank you for that, Elric. Um, and uh, we're here to talk about all of them. Why not? Yeah. Um, so um, I think the first one we should lead off with was the, the top of your list. Uh, and it is one that is a little bit synonymous with you. I remember you raving about it <laughs> as a young man. Yeah. And uh, it has a bit of a story to it, or, or, or at, least, at least one story. And that is uh, Andre Zulowski's Possession, um, which is 1981, I think. Yeah, that's right. I mean, depends what part of the world, I think. Yeah, but yeah. 
Yeah. So this this film conforms to your uh, 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 phrase you use on your podcast quite often, bonkers. Yeah, it is bonkers. Uh, yeah, and um, it. Uh, I can. In fact, I, just before you tell me a little bit about it, um, I actually looked at the Ari Video website and just to give you, just to give you my opinion. <laughs> which I had written down. I say brazenly over the top tale of domestic disharmony and demon possession, infamous for an incredibly mannered performance by Sam Neill and an incredibly selfless performance by Isabella Gianni, for which she won Best Actress at Cannes. Some terrible English dialogue by Polish native Zelowski and a dizzying lack of logic consign it to the Euro trash camp, but its twisted artsiness renders it one of the more fascinating shockers of the early 80s. And apparently... Sam Neill's personal favorite. <laughs> yeah, recently that came out. Uh, uh, he also has a great quote where he says he won't talk about the film at all until somebody passes away, which he always said, and then Zulowski just passed away and he's still not talking about it, which only leaves right. one culprit. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I love. So um, so tell me, I mean, uh, you know, I, I've stepped in there and, uh, and given you, yeah, I, I that... Uh, what I've just read out is, is pretty much my memory of it. Um, it being, um, yes, yeah, Sam Neill's rather wooden performance. What, what did you make of it, or what, no, what did you love I, no, about I think the film? He's as, I think he's as good as a Johnny in it. I think, I think it might take seeing it again, though, because it's quite shocking. The the acting styles are so heightened, you know, and 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 being mm. being that you know, obviously I ne- I needed to put a Sam Neill because he is you know my favorite New Zealand actor and um but yeah. but it's so different what he's what he's channeling it's it, it's a, it's a strange pain this movie like it's not an easy <laughs> watch you know it's it's yeah. not it's not a movie I champion it all the time and yet I don't try to rewatch it too often because it's yeah. not I just think it's not that wouldn't be healthy but it's you know it's Kramer is Kramer with a you know penis monster in the middle of it and, <laughs> and that's the, that's the easy sell but it's it's a film that I didn't know existed and uh, Campbell Walker mm. one of your uh, long-term uh, you know video store employees who you know was always a fascinating conversation and um, sometimes yeah. would make you feel bad about renting something that wasn't uh, highbrow um, sure <laughs> but he, he, had t- he had definitely passed this one on and to me at one point he knew I liked horror and art house films and I'd never yeah. seen an intersection like this I'd never seen the two worlds yeah. collide so perfectly and I was probably yeah. a little just shocked and confused by the first viewing but I knew I liked it and on subsequent yeah. viewings I feel I feel the film more now I understand it emotionally the more relationships you have the more you mature you start to go okay this is a director putting all that pain of his recent you know betrayal and a divorce into one movie and it's a bit of a primal mm. scream and there aren't a lot of movies like that and so yeah you know yeah I, I, I see I see where you're coming from absolutely I haven't seen it for 20 years or more I think I saw it at the incredibly strange festival uh, it, it did play on the big screen, but I couldn't tell you whether it was the 90-minute cut or the 120-minute yeah. cut. Do you, do you know more about the differences between those films and what yeah, your preferences is, is? It's huge. I would never tell anyone to see the American. So the U.S. cut was actually about 84 minutes, and it was brutal. So the version you have in the store is is the proper version, the European version. It's about 120-something, 130 minutes. 
and sure. the so you can imagine making a 130 minute movie you know that's very personal to you and it gets to america and it's cut to 83 minutes by the producers who just wanted a horror mm. film they they just and it's really especially the part where he's really suffering and the relationship stuff in the first act is really just cut to this crazy pace where you just don't have the long scenes that gets to what the heart of the movie is the kind of the kramer mm. versus kramer elements are being basically cut out in lieu of they can't add much more horror there's a couple more flashy sequences but um yeah no it's it's pretty much an abomination that short version i watched it for the first time recently on a right. very it's very hard to get um okay and it's not worth watching at all so yeah well that's good we don't have to confuse the two then there's no. really only the definitive version yeah um it um the, the it reminded me um there's that French movie In My Skin, which reminded me a lot of um, of Possession. Do, do you know that film? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm uh, Marina yeah. uh, Del, uh, Devan. Yeah, uh, big fan yeah. of it. Actually, it's very disturbing yeah, in a yeah. similar way. I think it's influenced a lot yeah. of. I think there's a lot of European art house horror now. I think the last couple of years I've seen a real comeback of that kind of aesthetics. Uh, a mare. There's yeah. a lot of movies. So, and I think it's. Yeah. I think Possession's finally finding its voice. Uh, it, I don't yeah. think it finally got a good release on Blu-ray out there in in the UK and America. So I think that's helped. Yeah, excellent. Um, we'll, mo- we'll, we'll move on to number number two on your list, um, which was probably the most surprising of the five you've chosen, and that is um, um, a place in the sun from 1951, starring Elizabeth Taylor um, and Montgomery Clift. Which I, uh, unlike Possession, I actually saw it last week. <laughs> nice. So, uh, which I, I'd never seen it before, so I was very curious and. Um, Really enjoyed it, um, but I was very curious as to why you picked this one in particular, uh, it being a fairly mainstream Hollywood melodrama um, that won some Oscars. Yeah, this one, I mean, if you ask me my favorite movie, this, I mean, The Shining, but this would be this would be in there. It's a movie that just get, unlike most classical American movies, which I always love them because, the, you know, the production value and the performances, but this one really mm. got under my skin. And I think it's saying about the kind of the honesty with which it portrays um lust and especially when we're young and you might be in a relationship but then you have these feelings and you feel trapped uh, a lot of things i think woody allen has put in his work but uh, you know and especially like mm. crimes and misdemeanors you know um but in fact we were talking on skype a minute ago with the visuals and you would have seen the poster behind me because that it's actually on my wall but um it's sure. uh it's a movie i think montgomery clift is just incredible in it um he is yeah and there's these you know close-ups of him and kissing Elizabeth Taylor for the first time that I don't, I don't intellectually take them in. I, I feel them. I, I literally yeah. really feel them. And, and towards the end of the movie without spoilers, you know, he, you know, he's, he's, this is guy as a guy who's going to be put to death. And the thing that comes back to him is just this image of her, her mouth and, and yeah. kissing him. And it's just something about the sensual nature of yeah. what the George Stevens is creating there. Uh, and also Shelley Winters, is, is, who pops up in a lot of my favorite films. Night of the Hunter is another film I would have Indeed. gladly backed. Um, yeah, and she's yeah, incredible yeah. in both. She's kind of the same character in both. <laughs> yeah, although she actually was playing against type at the time, uh, yeah. where she was a Hollywood glamour girl. So she was a, a, a curious choice for that uh uh, for the uh, you know unglamorous uh, girlfriend, yeah, the frump, um, the frump, who is yeah. the frump? That's the yeah, word. Um, yeah. Who is knocked up by uh, by our anti-hero? 
Um, um, I will say, I will tell you really quickly because it's because when I say it gets under my skin, I had heard a, I saw the first half of it on TV and had no idea. No, the second half just was on TV one day. Caught the second half, I was like, "What is this movie?" I think the speedboating scene onwards, and I was just kind of yeah. hypnotized by. It. I never watch movies halfway through, and then I rented yeah. it from Arrow when to watch the rest. And then years yeah. later, I read a uh, Cassavetes biography which was fascinating and it said that there's a great story in there where Cassavetes before he started making his own movies he went to the movie theater and he saw a place in the sun in the morning and he walked out and he apparently was pissed off and hated it and ripped up his ticket and was stamping his feet feeling very upset for some yeah. reason and he couldn't put his hands on it finger on it and he suddenly went back into the theater to watch it again and then he watched it three more times that day and then afterwards decided he wanted to be a filmmaker because right. was, okay. and, and it became his favorite movie because there's something about it that initially got under his skin and then suddenly something turned and he realized it was a, this very honest piece of work which I just yeah. thought it was one of those stories when I read it I, I could identify with his reaction yeah, to yeah. it strangely enough yeah, yeah. Um, a couple of things that, that came to mind while watching it one, one was uh, Murnau's Sunrise there's a, certainly a similarity there absolutely uh, yeah. kind of you know the, the moral tale of, of the, the young chap that gets himself into his who's whose dick gets himself into trouble. Yep. And the rowboats, and, uh, taking, taking a girl and, out in a rowboat to murder her yeah. is very similar. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the, you know, the thing I, I think that um, is uh, characteristic of films of that time is um, because they show a very amoral or immoral situation. Um, and instead of censorship coming down hard on the themes, they tend to have an over-moralizing uh, ending. Yeah, I agree. No, <laughs> I, was, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. And and that's the one thing that dates them. Um, yeah. And uh, but notwithstanding that, you know, it really was a, a really engaging and and as you say, just everything of that time is just so they're just so watchable and so um, beautifully crafted. Just you mentioning that kiss as well. I don't know if you remember, but the kiss um, is is actually obscured. So the mouths of Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift are you, you don't actually see them connect. Right. Um, because it's obscured by his shoulder. Once again, that's and like that, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre where you think you saw the woman on the hook. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's how good and, it is. And of, yeah. and of course, by obscuring the kiss, where we see those very sort of um, closed-lipped kisses, which are, are quite artificial uh, during that time, by obscuring it, your imagination does the rest. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, the theater of the mind is they're so powerful. Of the mind. I love it. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah I didn't, yeah. I didn't even realize that. You're, you're, you actually are telling me something I didn't consider wow. and it makes total okay. sense about that okay. scene because and i think that's the thing about powerful things you you don't over yeah. you don't intellectualize you don't look for more you're, you're satisfied with what you see yeah no no it, it is a, it is a lovely moment um so the other film that i watched in prep for this interview was cockfighter uh, the other one uh, your third choice uh, monty hellman i think it's 1974 uh, a film i hadn't seen before uh but knew by reputation uh can you tell us a bit about that film well, one of my favorite, it's a, there's a couple of very personal parts, but uh, uh, Warren Oates is one of my, you know, maybe my favorite screen actor next to Mitchum. And um, this is one of, I think, one of his best performances. It's it's remarkable. Also, it's Charles Williford who wrote Film Noir. Um, and he, you know, kind of lived, he kind of really saw these, these kind of gambling dens. And uh, it's a great kind of portrait of the South, the really ugly seedy sides. It's shot by Nestor Alamandros, who, you know, is one of the great cinematographers, uh, produced by Roger Corman. And Corman and Monty definitely had a, a <laughs> very different pictures in their mind. And I think what mm. Monty Hellman's doing is he's taking something they wanted to call Born to Kill, and in some releases did, uh, a mm. cheap, 
exploitation film and he's making it into art and he's telling a story about a man who uh was such a braggart you know and so full of himself that eventually harry dean stanton you know beat him in a cockfight and now he's made this decision to himself that he won't utter another word in his life until he uh is successful again he's he's gonna give up you know uh, mm. bragging and and i could to mm. be honest i take that on in my life and think oh yeah we'd spend so as filmmakers we'd spend so much time talking about the films we want to make and there's a part of me that's like you know what i'm just not gonna say another word until i get it done i just want to do it and I, that's what i take away that's a part of that story i really identify with yeah but you wonder if Jane Campion had seen Cockfighter as an inspiration for um, Ada's character in The Piano. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, you, know, you never know. I mean, I don't know what its release is like. That'd, that'd be a strange, strange double yeah. feature. But, um, yeah, yeah. But I love Harry Dean Stanton. And I guess, so this is the story you might not know, and this is the, the personal part. It, it could have been any Monty film, but I remember it was actually Amalgamated Video. I don't want to give them a plug back in New Zealand, but I used to mm, go to go the... Go for it. Yeah, I used to Now defunct, the, by the way. <laughs> now defunct, that's right. I used to look at the back of their VHS tape for... Um, uh, the shooting by Monty Hellman. I had never heard of it, but I, I liked Jack Nicholson at the time. And the name Monty Hellman was something about it. Just had this weird hold over me. I was like, "What a name!" Like Hellman, you know. Just and I just knew I wanted to start watching his movies. So I started seeing some of these films. And when I got to L.A., if anything has come out of L.A. for me, the most interesting thing has been that I actually ended up um, in a very small group of a you know four or five people getting to spend about th- uh, once every week for about three and a half years, I got to go to Monty Hellman's uh, house and watch a movie with him and take these little classes with him. And mm-hmm. um, they're really just like, I've never had a mentor and he would never consider himself a mentor. He's not that type of guy. He's not sentimental mm. in the least. He's, you know, but, um, but, you know, so every week I got to go up there, we'd watch a classic movie and he would give us little lessons and sometimes his stuff. And he'd give us these little lessons about cinema or his, his views on what, what makes good directing and movies. And I, I stumbled upon it randomly and got so lucky to be, you know, part of this thing. And then it started off as a class and eventually just became a informal, you know, come up to Monty's house to watch a movie. Uh, it's yeah. just ending now. I haven't been up in a few months because he's moving out of LA finally. He's about 80, mm. 82, 83. Yeah. But it's one of the great, I mean, the luckiest things I think I've had in my life. And, and the one cool thing it led to was um, on the disc. I'm not a, I haven't adopted this because I don't think you can get it in New Zealand yet, but I might try to send you guys a copy. Uh, Iguana. Mm-hmm. One of one of the best later films I think he made. Um, pretty mm. ha- hard nosed movie, pretty violent. Uh, mm. An Italian company, Raro, put it out, and I actually end up being tapped to do an on screen, like thirty minute, just me and Monty on screen interview on the yeah. extras of that. But it was they asked me to just get him to do a quick intro and I asked him mm. and he goes, I'm not doing an intro, but if you want to do an interview with me on camera, I'll do it. So he came and set up a three camera thing and I did not want to be on screen. I mean, that was no interest of me to be on screen under like, it's just too much, you know, a lot of pressure to be on. Mm. And he's a hard mm. guy to talk to. He's not as hard as like John Ford. If you ever see those, mm. but he's, he's from that mold of short answers. But if you ask even though you'd question. had plenty of experience oh, being totally. on screen for your YouTube series and so yeah, forth. It didn't matter because I felt like uh, the stakes with guests are always a bit lower because it's somebody you don't really know and it's a bit of fun. Mm. Whereas this, this mm. I felt an obligation, so I kind of over prepped and just felt nervous. Yeah. And and it's cool. So now, but it's a cool piece, and it, I'm really glad we got it done. And there's some great stories behind the making of that film. But he's he's you know he's a terrific guy, and he's a guy who really uh, is a great lesson to filmmakers because he's a guy who always mm. wanted to do it a certain way, and that way never worked with Hollywood, and he never really yeah. got to have the Hollywood career. He, he definitely sure, is an outsider. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. 
So that that uh, just just brings about questions I was going to ask you about be, being in LA and being so connected. You know, as I say, the epicenter of film, and you've you've uh, these. Uh, as you say, you were in amalgamated video looking at the back of a VHS cover at a, at a, uh, a name, Monty Hellman, that intrigued you. And then flash forward 10 years and you're, you're good mates with them. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's that there are moments where I've had that are quite surreal in terms of the kind of heroes you have. Like Wes Craven was one, you know, who I ended yeah. up meeting. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, you know, somebody who well, you're a kid watch. I mean, you know, watching a nightmare on Elm Street was a pretty major event in my at about 10 or whatever it was. And, and then mm. here you are having, you know, lunch with somebody who you really respect. And they're just they're no different than, you know, yeah. anyone that they, they've found a yeah. way to achieve their you know dreams. But uh, yeah. so it's inspiring on that level. And I don't this is another thing I'm not sure if you would know, but I and it's partly inspired by our but I actually started a business out here. So when I was in LA I started yeah. it was like a micro cinema slash cafe called jump cut mm -hmm. cafe and we ran yeah. it for about three years and I learned the hard way you know what beautiful failure looks like you know running something sure. is very very difficult especially with food involved yeah um, I, I love the name by the way and, and your logo yeah uh, you know um the pastiche of um, Goddard's Breathless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was well, a lovely well, touch. well spotted, sir. Well spotted. So, so conceptually, it was beautiful. No, and, and everyone loved, and it was very popular. That's the thing. So, on the surface, uh, everyone thought we were doing gangbusters. But even doing surface level gangbusters in this town, given the rent and everything, just it was always mm. kind of doomed from the start. But uh, you know, three years yeah. of pretty amazing. We had John Carpenter come for a live event. Larry Cohen towards the end did a, an amazing class where he, he just did this crazy master class and it was you know it was a dream come true in that sense but even while I was living the dream I knew it was ending almost all the time and so it was a very right. interesting bittersweet thing to carry around and have to be the person who kept everyone entertained and happy yeah but know the reality of the thing. but it, but it, I learned you know I learned uh, a lot from that and you know whilst I'll be avoiding rents <laughs> uh, yeah. it hasn't put me off wanting to do something that that and maybe yeah. podcasting is one way to do that you're curating absolutely and yeah sharing your yeah, passion for sure yeah 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 I was just going to say my my uh, equivalent of all those connections that you have with those uh those well-known directors that are somewhat your neighbors uh, would be, I was sitting in a, a pub when I was, um, we were putting out the U2 Redux DVD Blu-ray and um, we went for a beer and I was sitting uh, in between Jeff Murphy and Lee Tamahori. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> and uh, that was my, my equivalent was like, hey, I'm sitting between two uh, New Zealand filmmaking legends. Uh, yeah, I mean, I so, think Goodbye Pork Pie is still the greatest thing ever. So it's yeah, still a yeah. movie that just, it takes me back completely to a nostalgia that I never really even experienced about New Zealand because it's before yeah. my time, but it's still, it feels like what New Zealand is to me, that film. Yeah, it, it's a yeah, crystallization definitely. of that, you know, it's great. Yeah, yeah, indeed. All right, so uh, choice number four of your adopter movies is The Swimmer, uh, which is a film I have seen, but not perhaps not for 15, 20 years. Um uh, an, an odd movie, a cult movie. Um, I haven't researched this one so much, Elric, so tell me um, your thoughts about The Swimmer. My, my only recollection of it is that it's quite, it really does etch into your brain the visuals of it. It's very, 
has a very distinct um, look to it. But I do yeah. remember, again, uh, Burt Lancaster's acting was left a, a little to be desired. It's quite wooden. No, no, this is one of my favorite screen performances of all time. Like, I'm not joking. This really is one of my favorite screen performances. So you might need to give it another look, if you trust yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. If you trust me. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Well, yeah, well, it's a film that was much maligned, didn't, didn't do anything when it came out, had a lot of production problems behind the scenes. But um, it, it's a film that's reputation, again, is just starting to come back now with a, with a nice new release over in the States mm. from Grindhouse Releasing. Um, but yeah. it's a film that came from our video. Uh, it's one that we had not, mm-hmm. me and Alex had not seen. He rented it blindly. So I'm completely thankful to him on this one. And we sat down and we watched it while mm. we're, I think we're editing our first film. Um, I think I'm going. Mm. And it just floored both of us. Both of us are aware of the uh, novelist John Cheever, who, uh, mm. you know, is just, is just, you know, really great uh, kind of documenter of that kind of New England drinking too much socialite type uh, world, uh, mm. kind of like uh, a little bit like John Cheever. Uh, but um, mm. I love I, I love Burt Lancaster, but this is one of those films where you're watching. I, I like psychodramas, and I think New Zealand's always actually been very good at making psychodramas, much better than horror mm. films. Uh, mm. Films where you're watching the disintegration of a mind on screen, and you know you watch mm. this incredibly lush visual movie with this beautiful star, kind of at the absolute peak of his career in color, uh, as he mm. he comes back after being away for a while, and, and all his neighbors are a little surprised to see him, but you don't really know why they haven't seen him for a while. And it seems normal enough that he's there in his speedo and he's swimming from pool to pool, taking drink, a drink from each person who offers him. And he keeps talking about how he's realizing looking over the Valley that each pool looks like they more or less connect. And they make this, this massive, Mm. uh, uh, pool map that leads all the way to his house. And if he could just swim from pool to pool, maybe everything will be fine. And so he's mm. so he doesn't know anything's wrong on the surface. And so he takes on this weird challenge and he keeps talking about his wife and I'll, I'll swim back to her. And he slowly takes this strange challenge, this coyote like, you know, uh, a challenge to swim from pool to pool. And with each one, as we go, things start to unravel and we start to reveal little things about himself. And then as we get closer to the destination, things get worse and worse. And we start to I don't I don't want to spoil it, because to me, this mm. is a true gem for someone to discover if they listen to this episode and, and suddenly take a risk on this movie if if they are into strange stranger movies and cult movies i think Mm. there's a real payoff emotionally to where this film ends up and it's it just surprised me i I just i don't think i've quite seen a film uh quite like Mm. the structured i keep i keep thinking waiting for the george clooney remake because it seems rife for an actor and his kind of at the age he's at and yeah, absolutely. He would be a good match. It is a quintessential LA film, isn't it? I mean, it could really only be made in LA. Well, well I th- no, Just, weirdly enough, it's it's uh, actually, I mean, you would think that it would make sense in LA, but this one's all about um, like Connecticut, this one part of, on the East Coast in oh, summer. Oh, is that where it's set? It's because they're all wealthy. So you're right, though. LA right. would be the place, you know. Oh, where, okay. Where well, right, right, pools. right. Okay, I, I only imagine that everybody has a swimming pool in L.A. It, well, when you fly over it, it definitely looks like that because you know, that's all you're yeah. seeing. But, um, you know, it's a, and one of the behind the scenes, Frank Perry in general is one of these directors who deserves, you know, a major retrospect and a major rediscovery because he has about four titles that are all almost impossible to get on any kind of release. Play it as it lays as a major one. Um, uh, what's the summer one? Just, uh, oh, just escaped my mind, my mind. But he's got uh, mm-hmm. Last Summer, Last Summer, which is an amazingly powerful film with Barbara Hershey. These are movies that mm-hmm. are really as good as anything that was being made in the six, late 
late 60s, 70s, and yet he has much less of a profile because of how hard they are to get. Um, yeah. I know there's somebody working on a book, and eventually they'll probably you know turn up uh, with nice releases, and then they'll really blow people's minds. But he was fired towards the very end of the swimmer i think he had shot it all but then and it wasn't and, mm-hmm. and it wasn't lancaster it was the producer and then they brought mm-hmm. in sydney pollock to finish it it was his first uh directing assignment he was he was the um kind of second unit on it and so that's uh, the only bummer about the film is that that happened behind the scenes you can't really tell the difference between their sequences but you know it's a mm. shame it's a shame it had mm. that history yeah interesting yeah um all right we'll move on to number five uh and that is uh the the seventh victim um from 1945 i believe now i have to confess uh with this one elric i um when you suggested this one i mistook it as i often do for for a film around the same time called the seventh veil oh interesting and i think that they Maybe it's just me, but they often get confused. Um, and so I only today uh, realized that it was the seventh victim that you had adopted, and um, neither of which we, we uh, actually have on DVD. Uh, so I was excited about either choice. I hope you can um, find seventh victim. <laughs> well, that, uh, that, that I have found it. It's just, um, it will just cost me, but I think it's worth it to invest. And, and you've certainly put a good, you know, you've... You've made a generous contribution towards it, but yeah, it's it's rare and expensive. Yeah. No, um, so tell us a, um, about the seventh victim because so, um, it, it looks really. It's a film I've always wanted to see and never have. Yeah, I think you'd like it a lot. I, I only just saw it. I think about a year and a half ago. I've been on a major of all the filmmakers. To be honest, the one that's starting to have the biggest influence on me these last few years is um, producer Val Luden, the uh, not, mm. not a director at all, um, and just kind of. I always I I saw I walk with a zombie and cat people years ago you know and they i loved both of them but it wasn't until i started discovering some of the lesser seen uh titles that he produced under R- for rko for this b division that he worked for where i started to really see the art of what was going on curse of the cat people the sequel is one of these films that on paper should be terrible there's no cat people in it it's not really a hmm. sequel and yet it's one of the best films about childhood I've, an imagination I've ever seen in my life and then there's The Leopard Man which is just an incredibly beautiful uh, dark uh, kind of serial killer film uh, shot by Jacques Tenier who shot a, quite a few of these so um, when I discovered Seventh Victim Turner Classics has a channel over here and it's pretty much the only way to see these there, there isn't uh, in easy to get DVD of any of these films right now um, mm. there was a box set a few years back and once that went out of print it's been a lot harder and I, I recorded Seventh Victim and it's basically this incredible movie where this uh, and, and you know, it's all about shadows and dark and not showing the things you know leaving it to the imagination of the viewer that's what I'm really taking from Luden's work and um, in this one it's a young girl has gone to the big city in New York Greenwich Village because she hasn't heard from her sister in a long time and she slowly starts to and it's a very kind of hipster kind of neighborhood for the 40s in Greenwich Village mm. at the time and she starts to uh, you know, so most of the movie is a mystery of her trying to find her sister um, and there's just some incredible scenes where her and a man have to walk down a dark corridor and you don't know what's going to be down there and you just kind of hold on the shot as they disappear into the darkness and then they have to, you have to wait for them to come all the way back out of the darkness and just great suspense work but when you mm. then discover the sister she's fallen in with a group of actual New York Satanists who are very mm. and it's treated 
very realistically it's not at all over the top the way these satanists they're they're not like what we would consider satanist black goth metal now it's much more mm. high society curse of the demon mm. type stuff which mm-hmm. is another another fantastic movie um mm. but uh and she's got this just incredible style her sister has this amazing haircut just a fascinating looking on-screen character and i i can't mm. say too much about where it goes it has a very incredibly bleak uh, mm. vibe about it that could only come from that period of film noir it's not really a film noir it's maybe more horror but it's got that influence of that mm. hopelessness and where it ends up is one of the more shocking endings in, in a movie in terms of just kind of emotionally uh, and it's quite it's just this haunting movie and, I, and it's not spoken about really nearly enough and I have to assume it's because of the you know lack of distribution but um, mm. it, it just shows what incredible work this this producer one of the most creative producers you know to ever work because he also wrote a lot of these scripts he always had a hand in the idea all the ideas came from him uh for these Mm. films and it's just you watch them and they really come together as a little shared universe to me the luden the luden verse um (laughs) absolutely yeah well i I very much look forward to uh to to watching it um the kinds of movies you've been talking about are very much uh the kind of thing that you talk about on your podcast and uh, you've done several episodes on Danny Perry's cult movies and I and you mentioned that earlier um, and I just wanted to bring that up that uh, that it, it really is a cultural touchstone and something that um, heavily influenced my interest in in cult movies uh, oh and I didn't know that in general that's great. absolutely um, so it is something of a curious movie lover's bible um, and uh so it was really good to, I mean, the cult movies number one was, was uh, published first in 1981. Uh, and uh, I not only used it as a checklist for my own personal viewing, but also as a way to, to build a film library. So uh, it was very much one I uh, referred to often. Uh, and, and films like Deep End and Targets and even Harold and Maud yeah. are films that I came to know through that uh, book. Um, so I've, um, and there's still a few that, uh, you know, I hadn't, uh, I pulled it off my bookshelf and, and dusted off the cobwebs uh, for this uh, interview. And um, it was nice to reacquaint with it and notice that there's still a few things that we don't have. Ah. Um, and even though The Seventh Victim is not in uh, any of the cult movie uh, books, um, it very much is part of that universe uh, where it's like, um, either have had it only on videotape and or I think the seventh victim we actually it, the, the tape got damaged so to have a DVD copy of it is uh, is wonderful but that's part of the journey that I'm going on by um, having an adopter movie scheme and involving our customers more intimately with curating the collection is really revitalizing my interest um, because as a video store in 2018 you know for the past few years our resources have have been um, uh, depleted as you can imagine and so as a result you have to be much more careful about what you're spending your money on and it's very easy to um, uh, to to you know make 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 decisions with the heart and not the head uh, Mm. when it comes to (laughs) no I understand (laughs) that yeah your movie love so this is enabling me to to revitalize uh 
my interest and to be much more proactive about uh, seeking out hard to find movies. So there's a really nice intersection uh, that's come into play um, and you're part of that intersection um, with your podcast and, and um, as I say from the, the five or six episodes I've heard um, I'm there's so many nuggets that you've uncovered um, and um, and some of them are from Danny Perry's uh, books and and many of them are not um, oh, and but, many and many of them are from our video and that, that's kind of the beautiful circular nature of this conversation like a lot of things that I was most inspired I discovered in my most cinephilic period which is the period I was renting from our video so for you to say that yeah. and I'm doing a podcast yeah. now these things these things are um, a good a film culture can only survive in that way that it's cyclical that you're passing on yeah. to me and I'm passing back to you and passing on to new people and anything else yeah. won't work it won't be sustainable you know yeah and, and in many ways i was thinking thumbing through danny's book the, you know the influence that those books had on on us uh is uh, you, know, you know with the uh, podcasting as as a uh, the modern media medium in, in which we communicate these ideas and make recommendations you know there are there would be similarly um people listening to your podcast in particular and noting down every single movie you mention yeah we get we get <laughs> a lot of complaints we get a lot of complaints that um, we don't relist the title after we after we talk about it and because people are always say they're driving or need to somehow write it down which is quite funny but uh, yeah. i would say our our show was actually probably largely a result of those books in the sense that after uh, the, only the first book was a big influence on me. The other two I didn't discover till you know, much later in life. Uh, um, yeah. but, but we realized me and Brian talking about it, uh, that the, you know, those books end about, you know, late eighties, maybe 1990. I'm not sure. And we realized, mm. well, we can kind of be the post 90 cult movies. Like we can keep this going kind of what he's doing with these books. We'll do for the years after now we're jumping all over obviously, but that was part of the initial when we started doing our first episodes on cult movies of the two thousands, cult movies of the nineties, that was the thinking. Mm. And, mm. and, and it's because he did make such a huge, well, we wouldn't have done the show without his book. Cause it brought us together for an interview, you know, that led to the book that uh, led to the show. So, so at the end of season two, when we got to actually, I got to actually be the cinematographer on the interviews of Danny Perry um, for this documentary that Brian's been working on for years and hopefully mm. we'll finish soon. But so we got to spend, we had lunch with him in New York and then we, we, we had about two, two full afternoons of filming him. Um, mm. And it was just weird for both of us. Cause we're like, you know, the whole show was dedicated to this guy. And now here we are just interviewing him, asking about movies and he's the gentlest, yeah. nicest guy you could imagine. You can't imagine the yeah. guy sitting in front of you watching El Topo. Uh, and yet he wrote about the movies and those books without judgment. It felt like, like even if he didn't like it, he'd sometimes say, "Yeah, it's not really my thing." But I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put Basket Case in the same book as Citizen Kane, mm. and, and that is the great equivalency. Like once you, yeah. once you level cinema, highbrow and lowbrow mixed together, which is my interests. He, mm. he's the one who did that. He's the one who really said that's fine. That's why is that a problem? They're both movies, you know. Um, mm. And I love that about about him. And, he, and he's that kind of. He seems like that kind of guy from uh, from having met him. But um, yeah, no. For me, it was Aguirre and El Topo were the and, and probably neither Hunter after that. But Aguirre and El Topo were the t first two images in mm. that book that got in my brain, and I knew for years I had to watch those movies because that first book just. Uh, I mean, I was probably sixteen, and seeing that. Mm. 
and it, and it's pre-internet. People don't understand. You know, the I, I I do feel bad for, and I don't like to say I feel bad for young cinephiles because they they also have more access to anything than has ever existed. But in the same token, the journey is so easy now that there's mm. something quite amazing about not having the internet and getting a book like that and having to write down a couple of things and just hoping that one day you would find it or you know trying to find some alternate means to track something down. Uh, going mm. to a, a, a library like you know Victoria's library, I would watch a Fassbender film and then watch as many as I could because they had them there. But I yeah. but I but I couldn't go on the line to find out what they were called. You know, um, yeah. it's it, it's a really satisfying uh, journey. You know, yeah. Of course, the irony of the the movies that you've adopted, uh, Elric, is that uh, none of those choices are actually in Danny Perry's cult movies. <laughs> there you go. I'm, which, I'm carving uh, out my I thought, niche. <laughs> I thought that might have been a deliberate move. It wasn't, but it's that's an interesting. Uh, yeah. you, you, you got me that I'm trying to position myself uh, with my own Perry yeah. list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we've. Um, uh, I ha- have to mention that in the last uh, episode of of my podcast, um, you brought to my attention the film Brawl and Cell Block Ninety Nine as being one of your favorite films of two thousand and seventeen, and that is a film that I'd heard of but didn't really know much about because it was never released in New Zealand. Oh, and uh, the the reason for that is uh, because of our classification laws, which I do a bit of a, a spiel. In I, I did six. I did hear it, and I and I actually went sure. up for a job as one of the classifiers well when I was about 21 there and I sat yeah. through the whole story of what the job wouldn't tell and I was like forget that like I am not yeah. doing this job yeah. I just couldn't oh. believe it they're antiquated laws yeah, yeah sure uh, so I uh, so thank you for that recommendation and we're, we're looking at um, yeah hopefully having a, um, an unrated uh, pop-up cinema screening to get that film classified and and seen to a wider audience here um, but another couple of things I thought I'd mention, uh, you did an, e- an episode on documentaries and uh, The Cruise was one, I think, that you uh, cited. That, no, that was uh, a Brian that, choice, that one, but I've seen oh, it. Oh, was it a Brian choice? Yeah, 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 yeah it's sure. A great, so it's I've, a great flick, yeah. So we've got that one on our way because uh, we, we do have, uh, the classification laws do allow us to uh, to show unrated documentaries, <laughs> would you believe? Oh, because reality is <laughs> so, not scarier so than that, That's right. Than so it, it, it all yeah. dates back to, to 1980s uh, thinking. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, there's uh, another thing is we 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 are doing a little bit of programming ourselves for um, uh, up at the planetarium. We're showing films on the giant dome screen, and and one mm. of the um, uh, ideas for doing a, a three film season was to have a so bad it's good uh, season. And uh, even using the word bonkers, I thought was quite good. <laughs> Well, I, I'm morally against so bad it's good. So if you can use bonkers, uh, uh, doing shockwaves, there's a few th- like guilty pleasure and so bad it's good have become those things where it's like, I mean, so bad it's good is a little different because sometimes yeah. they truly are. But when it comes to people yeah. saying guilty pleasures, I'm always like, you know, they're, they're, it's if it's pleasurable, you're not guilty. It's guilt free. It's all cinema. Yeah, indeed. But Tommy Vaisu, The Room, The Troll Two, those things, I get it. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. They truly are atrocious, but the person cared so much. Yeah. And really tried yeah. to make a good movie that it works and make, becomes yeah. humorous. You know. Um, now speak, speaking of one man's meat is another man's poison Elric I do have a, um, um, a few things I want to mention to you um, as, a, as, as is inevitable with an opinionated uh, podcast you, <laughs> you agree and disagree with uh, you know comments that the that the host or guests make as long as I get uh, to have one of those of myself because I do have a bone from episode two of yours just oh I'm sure I'm sure you do <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so I um, 
So the first thing I, I'm uh, on the positive, I was glad that you brought up I Am a Sex Addict as, be, as, as a documentary that you, you oh, cited um, as being um, a, a underseen gem. I, I totally agree with you on that one. Well, one thing you're, um, you're not, you guys might not be aware, but I mean, honestly, the New Zealand Film Festival is one of the true gems of world cinema. I, I'm telling you, living in America, there is not a festival that even comes close to the breadth you get of movies. Right. They, they pop right. up all the time. And so seeing that in New Zealand and getting to meet Kaveh, yeah. you wouldn't have that experience in the same way here. Oh, that's and, really good to hear. It's really a terrific festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I was going to mention an, an, another one. I agree with you, but but I, I won't. I'm going to skip to to, to this <laughs> bone of contention I have. Um, one of my favorite films that I saw this year was Wait for it, Roman J. Israel Esquire. Oh, okay. And I heard you say that uh, that you you were really with the film for the first forty minutes, and then you you said that it was one of the worst films of the year. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, wait, after that, that. That's, okay 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 there you go what, <laughs> and what, what, and i <laughs> and i couldn't help but say before you before you justify your your um your position um i I've, I've also heard you say that you're a visual guy and not a dialogue guy and i thought that's why because the dialogue uh, in be, that film be. is shit hot yeah <laughs> no the first half i was in it i mean it's a great performance by denzel and i was just in the movie and as as it felt original, I felt like I hadn't quite seen that character before. And then at a certain point, yeah. it feels like the director, uh, the screenwriter, had you know suddenly then somebody showed them Breaking Bad, and he's like, oh yeah, let's do all of that, but just in the last twenty minutes. And for me, yeah. it, it felt like driving off a cliff a bit. And so it, yeah, it, it yeah. definitely took the film down a notch in my. I, I, I may, sometimes I will say worst I, film of the year. <laughs> I am I am very guilty of superlatives, and if there's a jail. <laughs> For overusing superlatives, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will probably be headed there. But most yeah, people yeah. tell me they don't mind because it's the yeah. passion they remember. <laughs> I, I knew I knew you and Donald Trump had something in common. Oh yes, that's right. That's right. We have, <laughs> we, I'm sure we have plenty, but uh, <laughs> I, I hate to think what. Okay, I, I guess. Um, uh, and the one other I'm, I'm going to mention, which is a film that I watched on your recommendation, and and this was not not a bad film, but uh, I, it, I just wanted to open up the conversation a little bit more about about horror. Um, uh, you're you're a big fan of the Black Coat's Daughter, and that's one I I've, I caught up with um, uh, as a result of you mentioning it, and um, and it and it felt felt flat to me. It, did, it didn't really work. It felt like really just I mean, you know it was it was fine. It was certainly watchable and not terrible, but unremarkable. And the reason I I'm mentioning it is not to shame you out at, at all, but that there is. Do you think that there's some um, in the, in the culture of horror cinema, you can there, there is a danger of uh, watching quite a few genre films in a row and and um, perhaps uh, seeing things that are you know either very low budget or amateurish or um, or very derivative. And then when something comes along with with you know that is um, uh, that exhibits some class that there's a kind of a feeling of yes uh, you know this is uh, you know the best film I've seen in a while I mean tell me about the sort of horror movie watching fatigue and if there is such a thing in your experience I mean I think I think those comments are apt uh, in general like I think if somebody I'm not a critic so I'm lucky in the sense that I don't have to watch everything so I, I don't watch I mean look if you ask me what is the quality of horror film I would say it's still 95% shit 
but I don't watch the shit. And then yeah. I, I try not to. And then, the, but all the movies I try to watch, most of the you know new films, and I see a lot of good stuff. Uh, you couldn't publicly shame me out with this because I disagree. I think this actually mm. is a tremendous movie. And what I watch mm. horror films for is a sense of atmosphere. And I think for me, that's what this has a masterful sense of this like tone of dread. Now, again, a mm. film is a spell and it's an individual spell. So you're not getting the spell does not mean you're right. And I'm getting the spell doesn't mean I'm right. It means mm. it, the spell was cast on me and wasn't on you. And, and, and we can, you know, we can, you can fight all day long about the merits of a movie, but Oz Perkins, yeah. it's Anthony Perkins, son who made it. Uh, it just right. felt unique to me and it had a viewpoint and, and a structure that like, worked for me the structure might not mm. work for someone else and structure is a big part of it with that film right if the structure mm. is too transparent to you maybe you wouldn't be along for the ride um and and i have a lot of friends i've told that film about who aren't really into it and i have a few friends who think is you know one of the greatest horror films of that decade so i definitely mm. have seen both sides of the coin on that and i think that's what good good horror films i think need to need to find the place there i don't think it's it's rare we only have a you know handful that everyone thinks is an amazing you know mm. piece of horror yeah. cinema but you're definitely on to i think you're definitely right about that a lot of people especially the kind of festival buzz you'll often get when the, something like the witch comes along where everyone's like mm. I, I i don't want to say overhyping because it deserves that hype in a lot of ways but it's overhyping yeah. compared to other things and and a genre that's usually just there's two ways to approach the genre and the reason it has always had a ghettoized um, kind of uh, sensibility and why people don't, you know, why people can't accept in Hollywood to call something a horror film. Why Get Out is a, mm. you know, political thriller because they don't want to call it a horror film or satirical thriller is because um, they see it as this ghetto genre. But the difference is some filmmakers come into a horror film wanting to make a great movie that just happens to be a horror film and some people go to horror because that's a way to get a foot in the door a way to start a career a cheap way to make yeah. a movie so 90 percent are probably just doing it because it's an easier way to get a movie made that doesn't hold mm. any interest to me at all those films occasionally mm. there'll be a gem mm. and there's some cool exploitation yeah. stuff but the directors like the friedkins the Polanskis, the directors who have put one foot into that genre because they had something to say in it those films are extraordinary and I do believe February is is not quite at that level uh, in terms of what it's saying. I think formally it's at that level, um, mm. but but it isn't. Yeah, it's not as deep a film. Um, but there's movies like It yeah. Follows and things like that that stay with you. And there's still a lot yeah. of really good horror every year, and that's what keeps me interested. I definitely would have moved on from horror if it was just if we based it on the general uh, releases. Mm. Um, but there are so many every year. I see about five pretty extraordinary movies and then about 10 mm. or 12 really good ones and then a few yeah. others that i have fun with and that's enough to keep me you know yeah yeah plowing Absolutely. through it because it's an so, intersection of art and horror a cinema you don't get your average drama doesn't get to use the art of cinema very well you know they're limited mm. to realism but with dreams yeah. and and flashbacks and and mood you can actually do so much that like you know that tarkovsky might be doing if that kind of cinema exists anymore but you can do that in a horror film still and it somehow has a payoff and it's weird yeah it's, yeah. yeah no 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 well said um you, so you were going to take uh i had a pot shot at me you're welcome to go for it i was excited to no it's an easy one but uh, i think it was um i've i've forgotten his name but it was the genre enthusiast who actually wrote to me okay about your show. so you're going to take me to task over john carpenter aren't oh, you oh oh when i heard that i almost had to pull over my car <laughs> be only because of this i'll only say this it's not because you're insulting it's fine to say something anti-carpenter you could say you didn't like his film but you said he wasn't much of a craftsman and my argument 
point would be he is actually the finest craftsman ever in that genre. Yeah. In fact, I think yeah. he's on a craftsman on the level of the, the John Ford types. He just kind of got stuck in budgets yeah. and the kind of movies he didn't really want to make in the long yeah. run and he often got budgets taken away but if you look at the six or so movies in a row that he made that are the craft is what you walk away yeah. with like oh wow he knew how to put a film together they could have been westerns sure. it didn't matter what he was making he he knew how to, so that was my only complaint that's absolutely <laughs> fine elric uh, to be honest i was winging it and i had <laughs> forgotten how much i'm a really big fan of christine i just think oh, that's me too, a really me underrated too. film i think yeah. it's one of his best directed again that's where you see his yeah. chops like he knows when to reveal the moment he knows when to show yeah. you yeah no he's a, he's a he's a really good film director yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, i'd say yeah. about yeah. um look uh, we will we'll wind it up shortly but um i understand you've got a podcast episode are you uh, you've got a new season that you're kicking off uh tonight i understand yeah what what day would this come out uh this will be coming out hopefully in a couple of days uh so okay all i'll say then i can't reveal but there's a pretty big change coming um this season to that show in terms of our uh, sponsor which will be announced in the next couple of days it could be like just right. around the same time if i knew if it was a week from now i'd definitely know it's secure but uh it's a pretty big deal for us it's it's not a big money deal but it's it's some it's a place that we uh, and a sponsor that we just utterly love and couldn't be more kind of in line with cinematically so i think people will think it's pretty cool and it's giving us a bit of a recharge about the whole thing because you know it's and we're changing up the format doing a few different kinds of episodes instead of the heavily produced shows they will still exist once a month because they take a lot more editing and and then we're going to do a little more looser video store hangout style episodes mm-hmm. of just you know because there there's a lot of other stuff we want to talk about so so there are a couple yeah. changes but yeah we'll be back on air mid-month november and um yeah. we've been off for a couple months so yeah so how does that feel to have taken a break and and how, how how are you managing to juggle all the various elements in your life i understand you've yeah. you've got a day job um and uh, family and children and um yeah i, I don't and I don't. Uh, and, <laughs> and podcasting i don't think and, and i'm trying to still get a film made so my dream is still i haven't given up the filmmaking dream i've got a, a oh okay i'm gonna ask you about film. that yeah, I've got an yeah. art house horror film that I just got the script finally. I took a couple years, and it's it's very much a niche, definitely uh, by a guy who loves possession. You would be able to tell that, and uh, yeah. we'll see. We'll see if I can use all these contacts yeah. and connections I've made to, to for good. But um, but yeah, yeah I, I am a, I run a film department downtown in LA at a film school. Um, so that's my day yeah. job, and that's a very busy busy gig then yeah. i've got the two podcasts uh shockwaves is once a week every wednesday but i don't have to do much for that like i just have to watch some stuff and show up it's yeah. not my show it's our show you know yeah. so that's kind of nice and kind of on autopilot and um uh pure cinema does take more work and so we took time off largely because then we can prep and kind of get uh, we're doing a big a big series on a certain filmmaker uh that's going to be over three episodes this season mm-hmm. and because he's got a lot of films we had to watch <laughs> um right. and and so you know it's it takes work but as long as i always tell brian like if we stop liking you know if we don't if we're just doing it for the for other people then it's not going to be worth doing anymore and mm. I've, I've made a conscious effort to not just talk about movies i love anymore and actually try to discover new movies along the way so i'm not just because after about a season you've talked about a lot of your favorite movies so mm-hmm. to kind of keep going i challenge myself to see some noirs i haven't seen before and you know research movies yeah. so it's because i, I want to stay interested you know i don't want to just yeah. um recount uh my laundry list and and is there feedback from listeners i mean is there is the uh um, the listenership growing and is that does that create work where you're, you're having to um, interact with uh, with listeners 
a little bit. I mean, yeah, the, the audience has definitely grown a lot since we started. Um, we have a nice Facebook group that's about a thousand people on there um, just who want to talk about movies in positive terms. That's the other thing we haven't really talked about is, you know, the Internet and Twitter has a reputation of just being a cesspool. And it is if you're looking in the wrong place. But what we decided with these shows is to not sit around talking about stuff we don't like. Life's too short to talk about movies you mm. didn't like. And so we spend mm. all our time talking about things we want to recommend and discuss. So it's a mm. positive. It's not us trying to be new agey positive. It's actually no, no. A, a conscious thing to be like, why waste that time? Let's make sure people are talking about the stuff they love. And so that kind of translates to that group. And it tends to translate to how people talk about our show. And, and so you don't get as many haters that would be very easy to go. I think if you're going a lot more controversial and if you're doing an mm. Ebert and Siskel type show where it's all, you know, one friend of mine who's a, who's a LA writer, quite a successful guy. And he, he likes all the things we do. He wrote to me after a couple episodes and said, look, I love the show, but I think you guys need to find movies you really hate, disagree on and have more arguments to make it more dramatic. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I totally understand what you say, but I just don't think that's what this is. I think, that's not mm-hmm. i mean it might happen organically one day we've had very few um but i think this is a show about it's this more like two video store clerks you know uh talking yeah. about the movies they would put on their shelf you know yeah yeah absolutely yeah um well it sounds like you're you're yeah you've got your plate full you've got your fingers in all these piles and and, and you're um working towards maybe getting that feature film off the ground and and so I, I i guess a little bit like me you know i i've got a lot going on but i'm not quite sure where it's all leading to well, pe- so people often congratulate me on things and i'm always like i haven't done it yet what are you talking like i'm always disgusted when somebody says to me oh it's so great that you uh, like my sister wrote to me while we were having this conversation she's like, i'm so happy about to hear about the shows and i'm like well hopefully it'll lead to something one day that's how i view it yeah i'm not yeah, anywhere yeah, yeah. i'm just i'm just trying to juggle ten thousand things in hopes of still doing yeah. that one piece that i'll you know probably and probably that's the human condition we we never yeah. achieve that even if we make that movie because then that movie is not satisfactory and but um, but it is nice to have, you know have have some goals and 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 you know try to stay passionate about something keep it on target yeah. you know and we're often better at motivating others than we are ourselves and I'm definitely right. very guilty of that so excellent well we you know we will say goodbye but I'm I'm you know this is um, you know we'll be in touch again because I think that there's a lot that we can do to uh, f- for each other in terms of. Um, uh, either talking about films or getting films seen and getting them to a wider audience. So I'm quite excited about whether that happens on DVD or whether it's uh, pop-up screenings of, of odds and sods and bonkers festivals. So, Oh, yeah. I'd um, love to be involved be... in any way yeah. I could. And also, I'd love to, yeah, if we ever do a follow-up, I'd love to donate a few more films. It's nice to be able to give back to a place that really did i can't even say how much it did for me because it's without being cheesy and sentimental it just provide it was a place where you could find the thing that you wanted to find because it was there you had that kind of selection so oh well we're working on it thank you so much elric um, thanks Andrew. It's great to talk to you and um um yeah we'll be in touch take Cheers, care man. thanks okay, see you then bye bye hope you enjoyed that and are inspired to check out Elric's podcasts. Uh, Shockwaves is the horror one and Pure Cinema Podcast is well worth checking out. And apparently the new sponsor that he was reluctant to tell me about uh, was in fact the new Beverly Cinema, which is owned by none other than Quentin Tarantino. So that's quite a coup, quite exciting. So um, yeah, 
For those of you interested and listen to my afterword about New Zealand censorship in episode 6 of this podcast, I promise to let you know how I got on in my meeting with the chief censor, David Shanks, about the prospect of censorship reform and our specific aim to seek amendments to the regulations of the Film, Video and Publications Act of 1993, which would allow titles classified as 15 in the UK to be cross-rated to a New Zealand M. This would liberate hundreds and possibly thousands of titles, many of which are made for mainstream television and would be made available on DVD in New Zealand without having to be submitted for classification at the Office of Film and Literature Classification. David and members of his staff took the time to listen to episode 6 of this podcast in advance of our meeting and understood all of the points that are outlined in my spoken and also written communications with them. David himself admitted that the paradigm of censorship legislation had fundamentally shifted from the clear division between TV, governed by the Broadcasting Act, on one hand, and film and video on the other. He agreed with the idea that it was a hot mess, my words, not his, and that that his job as head of classification was to set about finding a framework and therefore a direction in which to take censorship into the next decade. At present that framework does not and has not existed, and therefore successive governments and censorship authorities have been paralysed by uncertainty, conflicting messages, outmoded legislation, and diminishing relevance to make any decisions, let alone progress. So in principle we're all on the same page, and certainly this is a censorship regime that I can work with. For the first time they do not have their heads in the sand, and they're more than willing to reference and constructively talk about What's been an elephant in the room? The internet. The challenges that the OFLC face are indeed the same as challenges faced by classification officers the world over. The USA USA being a notable exception where there is no mandatory requirement for films to be classified and thus no bureaucratic or hypocritical gulf in between what is shown on any screen, be they large, small or tiny. But I digress. When I got down to the subject of cross-rating UK 15s to New Zealand M's, the chief censor was circumspect. He was quick to point out that the film Red Sparrow was classified as 15 in the UK, and it would be entirely unsuitable to cross-rate that film to an M, given that it in fact was classified by his office as R16, contains graphic violence, sexual violence, rape, cruelty and offensive language. Fair enough, it seems. And this fact was indeed surprising to me, that an unusually aggressively violent Hollywood film would be classified as 15 by the traditionally cautious UK censors. However, David also pointed out that Red Sparrow had been edited or pre-cut for the UK release in order to obtain the 15 classification. And indeed, the BBFC website verifies that, I quote, during post-production, the distributor sought and was given advice on how to secure the desired classification. Following this advice, certain changes were made prior to submission. So this would seem to be an exception to the rule, and such an exception, you would think, would be given exceptional consideration. However, there's always exceptions to the exception, and this is potentially where the problem lies. So while David was not willing to support amendments to the regulations that would blanketly allow the likes of Red Sparrow to be unrestricted in New Zealand, He was absolutely receptive to the idea that many titles should not require mandatory reclassification in New Zealand. So I'm left with the task of working out just what kind of workable scenario would uh, comfortably translate into an amendment that he would support, and I feel the door is open for further discussion and negotiation. 
He thought that if I could make recommendations for amendments that both his office and also the cinema distribution representatives would support, then a change to regulations should be a matter of course. So all this is encouraging, but as with anything, there's always a lot of donkey work to be done, and the devil is in those details. Though there is plenty more to say, I'll perhaps leave it there for now and update you in part three of this ongoing saga. Before I go, though, I'll leave you with another example of bureaucratic absurdity that you might find amusing. This comes from the film and video labelling body, a government-mandated administration body who represent industry and are charged with issuing classification and rating labels themselves. It's a letter I received from them on the 13th of June 2018 when I submitted the title China Beach Season 1 to them to cross-rate after a customer of ours adopted it for our library. It reads, Hi Andrew, I have been unable to find a rating slash classification for China Beach Season 1. There is an Australian rating label on the cover, but the title does not appear on the website. We can examine the series, which is just over seven and a half hours, including bonus features, for $552, including GST. Alternatively, you can withdraw the title at no charge. Let me know what you would like to do. Kind regards. Film and video. Labeling body. Now, for those of you that don't know what China Beach is, or if it rings a bell, it's probably because you watched it in primetime television in the late 80s and early 90s. And that was when we only had two channels. So there you go. Thanks for listening, and don't forget you can support what we do directly by adopting a movie for yourself or someone you know, or you can become a valued friend of our video through our Patreon page, where we have a number of options for monthly support available. Also, if you think that you or someone you know would make an interesting guest for this podcast, then please get in touch, and we invite you to register your feedback about what you've heard through all the regular channels. Also, you can subscribe for automatic updates through your preferred podcast app. Until next time, bye-bye.